Hello and welcome to the Ford Unto Dawn podcast. This is episode 11, recorded March 21st, 2013. I am David, aka Dangerous Dave, and I am joined by our two regulars, Danny. Hello. And Isaac. What's up, everyone? Obviously, we are here to talk about Silentium, which is the final entry in the uh, Greg Bear penned forerunner trilogy um and i guess the first question before we get into spoiler territory is what did you guys think i honestly i was expecting the book to be good hoping it was gonna be good and uh i think it's one of the best halo books i've actually read ever not the best because it's not standalone i can't say it it stands on 100 percent on its own merits and it's probably not my favorite halo book but it's easily one of the best halo books published uh, in the past five years okay wait so then what is the best halo novel still for you contact harvest okay i i i would say that that was my favorite until this book and i would count this one <laughs> I still like the, the the smaller tale of what Harvest does. This this book blows the shit over in terms of scale and everything, but I like the standalone nature of Contact Harvest. I think it does that a lot better than this does as part three. Like the other two parts let the, let the whole trilogy down, if you know what I mean, which reflects badly on this. This book carries the weight of the failing to the first two books, which the first two books didn't fail that badly. It's just they had faults. I'm marking it down basically because of the first two books, so yeah, it's it's up there. It's just, I actually really enjoyed the read. Don't get me wrong, easily one of the best Halo reads I've had in such a long time. Page after page, it's blowing minds. I don't know. I I think actually what this book did really well compared to the other ones was it. To me, it remained a lot more accessible, and the the first couple of pages they really. I'm wondering if the whole set. I mean, each of the books has had a a really distinct style because he's playing with narrators a lot. But I wonder if the whole presentation of quasi courtroom drama, um, gathering evidence wasn't a cheat to sort of introduce some of the stuff. And cause the first part of the book basically serves as a previously on halo. They talk about what happens that, Oh, the flood are coming. This happened. These are the main characters. This is what's going down. Yeah, and they spent a lot more time doing that in this book than they did in either of the previous ones, or the at least in Primordium. Yeah, Primordium um, just I, drops you into it. I think that was part of the big um, decision to release this after Halo 4. I think it seems a little obvious that that was kind of a marketing decision, that the book would probably sell more copies after the game's release, after people were who hadn't read the previous books were a little more familiar with with the characters within the game. And again, that's also probably part of why they changed the cover because people would recognize that sitting on bookshelves rather than kind of a vague sci-fi environment that had no real relation to the game. Still think it was a terrible, terrible idea. Absolutely mind-bogglingly stupid idea to change the cover. So bad. I don't think it was stupid. I mean, like, I understand, like, Isaac said, it makes sense. The only thing that bothers me is that 
it's just just because it makes sense doesn't mean it was a good idea for the actual artistic integrity of the book and look at the other two covers they, they match they have a similar theme and this book just pushes all over because it's a marketing twist yep. you know yeah. oddly enough after having read the book I don't feel that the cover is actually that as, as bad as I had first kind of interpreted it to be I think it reflects the story much it better breaks, than the original cover it breaks does. the it consistency breaks this, of the first two and that's the only thing that matters consistency here <laughs> to a certain a extent, I mean, it's the same kind of art style. It's not as it's just not as uh, environmental and atmospheric, and and that's that. Re- I think that reflects what's so great about this book is it's it's not. This book takes this broad story that we've been focusing on with the forerunners and the humans over the last two books, and then kind of narrows it down just to the perspective of the librarian and the didact, and the cover reflects that. So that's what I like about it. Well, I mean, aside from consistency, the thing that gets me is that the librarian doesn't look like she's in the same 3D plane as the didact. That's that's what bothers <laughs> me. It was the same issue I had with the Thursday War, which, while it made sense that, oh, okay, he's looking down on this scene, the perspective was so bizarre. No, the librarian's just being projected sideways. That's obvious. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. But aside yeah. from the, the, the questionable just unfortunate marketing decisions getting back to the actual substance of the book to me the best part of it is that it goes through ultimately aside from the unfortunate sexy times i would say that contact harvest is probably the best executed book but it's also but, one of the most it's, it's problem lies in the the all the storytelling from the covenant side makes absolutely no sense unless you've played the game. So it's not as easy for a newcomer to Halo to dive into Contact Harvest. I mean, I can see that, but to me, the bigger issue is that it suffers It suffers the same way all the, I guess, if you want to say pre... Did Cryptum or Glasslands come out first? Cryptum came out first, right? Yeah. Okay, but basically it suffered from everything the same problem that everything before Cryptum suffered from in that this was a book where we kind of had to dance around plot developments because we don't want to interfere with the games. So you've got things like First Strike, Ghost of Onyx. They sort of just left the status quo. It didn't really matter if you read the books or not. And there wasn't really any hooks into the, into the games that much. And ultimately contact harvest to me was a really good story but a story that didn't need to be told we already knew what happened at harvest i mean it doesn't it doesn't tie into johnson's character in any way because his story was already done like i said it it ties into the origins of the war and really explains the covenant's motivation and that's i think to me that's the biggest um thing that that book lent to the overall narrative of halo but again you know, that's, that's only going to mean so much to people who don't know what the heck the Covenant are besides aliens. Yeah, but my point is ultimately that all the new books, even the maligned Glasslands, um, they definitely just tie in more, and especially with this book, it's, it is a lot of... I'm not sure how comprehensible it would be for someone who had never picked up a book. I think they made efforts to make it a little more accessible, but... At the end, it's pure fan service in a good way. I mean, they tie up a whole lot of loose ends. They blend together a lot of pieces of fiction that had sort of been thrown out there before. A whole lot. They they pretty much tied up 
almost all the loose ends, which is what's so amazing about the book. And and they did that, and Greg Bear managed to do that without even destroying their narrative or, or making it feel forced. That That's what's so amazing about this book. A common criticism of the first two books were they're kind of long, sort of ponderous, um, which I never agreed with particularly, but I could definitely see why people got that impression because they do spend a third to two thirds of the book walking in primordium but it was almost worth it in a way i think because you have um i think someone on a neogaf said that krypton was orientation lots of introducing you to the forerunners which you kind of needed because we didn't know anything about them and greg bear and 343's take is obviously a lot more nuanced than i think lots of people were expecting and then Primordium was getting into some serious deep story meat while also kind of having this familiar, we're walking around on a halo ring, um, digression. And then Silentium is, okay, you've learned everything. Now let's just go straight at it. It's relentless paced. It feels really short. The hardback version is 330 pages, which is definitely shorter than Primordium at least. So there's a huge amount packed in here and it kind of after the more slow build up it's really welcome to me the whole thing with that slowness and the the pacing i think i can pinpoint that across the entire trilogy now maybe maybe it's just from my perspective but um, whenever i was rereading some of the content in preparation for this podcast and actually did look over some of the, the older stuff one thing i noticed is that all the the areas where I attributed um, problems with the trilogy happen to be with the 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 humans, the human side of things. Whenever you see the de-evolved riser and chakas and and squelchy and walking around doing with ancestors and walking in circles, all was about these humans. The whole you have this whole story going on in the background. Forerunners, multi star system spanning awesomeness happening and then you focus on these cavemen and i think this book does it the best because it takes all that and sort of throws it out the airlock and i noticed with the uh the epilogue the epilogue goes back to uh riser and it's it's that slow plotting pace but because it's in an audio format on 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 waypoint i'm playing listen to it until it's done i think the thing is greg bear has an immense interest in human history and those aspects were what allowed him to latch on to the halo universe and get so involved with it um maybe so well, maybe i think primordium was really him exploring his origins much more i think the first book was exploring forerunners the second book was exploring what he wanted to delve into more which was humans and then the third book book brought it back around to just these two individuals librarian and didact and his his elements of the human characters uh, are retained throughout each one. And I think the audio epilogue was really just his way of closing off a character that didn't fit within the narrative of Salentium, uh, but that he still wanted to do justice to, that he had gotten attached to. He's given us more of what we want. He might want more of ancient humanity, but I don't. If it's not for for for, for Chanto, there we go, and the ancient human fleets kicking ass against Forerunners, I don't care. I don't care about cavemen. You know what I mean? See, and I and I found I all those bits really interesting in terms of how it showed the forerunners' influence on humanity kind of led up to where we are today. And I find that really interesting. But 
again, I get that a lot of other people like yourself aren't going to feel I, that way. I, I, I find I it interesting that. for the first first dozen pages, first first few dozen. Maybe maybe the next few dozen after that, maybe I liked it then too, but not after not hundreds of pages later. You know, it's, it dragged on, and I'm so happy that the they left that stuff out there and I think it shines it shows like the chapters literally just whisk by the way the way the whole catalog stuff works it is literally just click next event click next click next click next and it works yeah it definitely it's a a nice conceit to use because it does give you a lot of editorial freedom now there's one thing I want to ask um catalog was a new addition to the fiction that had never been mentioned in either of the previous two books. Um, but there was a bit of a narrative arc that was starting to develop with these characters that were following the primary protagonists around. Um, and then I felt like that thread kind of just dropped towards the end of the book. Obviously, there was more important stuff to focus on, but did you feel that the catalog characters were a worthwhile addition to the narrative? I think that they served their purpose and they they were intended to just do what they did in the book. I think, in a way, the the quibbles I have with, I mean, there's a couple I could get into, but the main thing that kind of bothered me was we got, along with Catalog, we'll probably talk about the other stuff like Star Roads later, but it really reminded me of the, the um, final Harry Potter book in that there's suddenly these really crucial tenants that haven't gotten talked about before now. And you kind of feel like some of that time when we were talking with the cavemen would have been a good place to sort of introduce this stuff, reference it a little beforehand. So it does feel kind of sudden when we get to these, whoa, this is going on. Yeah, I agree. But of course, that's, you know, one of the downfalls of any creative narrative or medium that you're working with. And stuff gets added later on that you can't go back and add back in or in some cases, you know, shouldn't. But he had an entire studio telling him exactly what they wanted to do by the beginning and by the end. Yeah, complete, complete, complete creative freedom. They plan his art to take as long as he wanted. And the book series has been delayed for years, too. I think it's important not to underestimate how much creative freedom he was given with this process. Because, I mean, everyone at 343 was hard at work on Halo 4 for a long time. And it's very likely that very few of them got much time to really provide feedback on the book and have some input in that creative process. So... I'm not willing here to give them the opportunity to say, well, we introduced all these concepts last minute in the final book. We didn't bother putting them in beforehand, but whatever. That's just us. That's just Greg Bear. No, it's bad storytelling. Simple as. I can, I can see the point, but I think I was going to lead into this now. Maybe this is the point where we should talk about it. To me, if you could sum up 343 Industries' approach to storytelling in Halo thus far, it's been a lot of awesome ideas that were unfortunately executed. I think less so in, I mean, Karen Travis for all the, the crud people throw her way. I think she's obviously at home doing what she's doing and she's doing it well. And then Greg bear was doing his own very different thing that he was doing well, but the meshing of them in the story specifically in regards to how silentium was kind of necessary to understand the didact it just feels unfortunate because i mean we're obviously big fiction fans even with the terminals i felt like i was missing a whole bit for that character 
Yeah, I felt like if I had read Silentium before playing Halo 4, I would have been much more emotionally engaged with the Chief's conflict with the Didact. Like, as it was, I was kind of like, yeah, I get that he's doing bad things, but I'm not really as motivated about this as the Chief seems to be. And if I had had that background and knew exactly how much torment and psychological manipulation the Didact had been through, it would have changed a lot of how I experienced Halo 4. I think it also, the the Halo 4 terminals give us a good enough background on how the Didact got to the point he was at and sort of how he fell from where we saw him in the other two books to Halo 4. But I think Silentium was the only place we got some good hooks into why once he woke up he was so pissed and was going back to to hunt down and compose the humans i feel like if they had added one more terminal maybe explaining either a little bit about his experience with the flood or his experience without the domain one or the other uh it would have lent a lot more to his characters uh, not, not necessarily development, but where he stands in Halo 4. It kind of begged to me, the, the I sort of had a similar thought. I was thinking if there was the equivalent of the keys terminal for when he's inside, like what he's experiencing over the thousands and thousands of years within the cryptum, that would have sort of Oh, that would have been really cool. And then you could have even had him flash back to his memories with the flood. And then what you could have integrated his experience with the logic, what was it, logics, or uh, what do they call it, logic infection, logic sickness, something yeah. like that. He could have shown his experience with that, and then also his tormenting experience inside the cryptum in one terminal. That would have worked out really well. He, wait, 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 the didact wasn't exposed to the logic plague, that was an AI thing? No, no, it, it infected organics just as well. But he wasn't exposed to it. He was he was brought to me to a grave mine, wasn't it? I'm pretty sure it wasn't like he didn't he wasn't exposed to it, obviously for as long as like mendicant bias or some of the other individuals. But no, he had still bias been affected even, by it. No, mendicant bias was was never exposed to the logic plague either. I'm pretty sure they talked about that in the book. We're talking about his conversion. Are we talking about mendicant's forty year conversion here? Because it wouldn't take 40 years for this this plague to work against Yeah, I, I think that the implication there is that once it got to a critical mass, it sort of could more easily corrupt. It was essentially you had to, with mendicant bias, it had to be direct contact, but then it became more and more diffuse. See, I got the impression that the, the logic plague was... Like, we had known that the Gravemind was persuasive before from the terminals in Halo 3 and his interactions with Mendicant Bias, but I thought that this book introduced a new concept that there was something more to it than just plain, you know, rhetoric and, and convincing. Oh, there people. is, but that's at the, the key mind level, which is well beyond the, the ability of a simple Gravemind. Like, a key mind can, like, bend space and time or something like that, and has access to neurophysical manipulation. Yeah, basically, like at, at the lowest level, which is still saying a lot, they have control over precursor artifacts, which is, uh, that's no laughing matter. And then, yeah, I think the capabilities, capabilities extended even more from there. I still have to go back and revisit that part and kind of uh, integrate that understanding. Yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing to think that as much as we've seen of the Flood in like Halo 3 um, and even some of the bits from the terminals, like it just their capabilities go so much further and they're so much more terrifying in terms of what they can do to the galaxy. But it makes you, it makes you think because right now they wouldn't 
the flood wouldn't be as deadly in the galaxy right now, even if they had the same sort of control just because of the absence of precursor artifacts. They wouldn't have the star roads tearing up planets like ribbons. You know what I mean? They wouldn't have that ability. So I don't really know. It'd be interesting to see, but I, I don't think the flood would have that would have as much control. Because the the fact that they used the the, the precursor artifacts was what allowed them basically to advance their, their their conquest against the forerunners so quickly and effortlessly almost. And that the end of the war came relatively quickly because of the key mines, because they basically went all out. The flood went all out. That's kind of awesome. Going back, I was kind of annoyed that, okay, this is kind of shredding the Halo 3 terminals. It's one of the things where I thought that there was plenty of room to play around with it and still keep much closer to the timeline. But I do think that they did a really good job of... I mean, they basically threw in... There's scenes from the Halo 3 terminals, there's scenes from the Halo Comet Evolved Anniversary terminals, there's scenes from the Halo 4 terminals. They're all thrown in. Halo Legends. What's in Halo Legends? Um, the scene with the, the lesser arc sending out the seven oh, yeah, Halos. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, he yeah. described that scene exactly. Yeah, there's there was just all these little things where you get to the regular the casual fan can read that and be like, okay, I get this. But for hardcore Halo fans, it's like, yes, just ticking off check boxes on like, yeah, yes, I, yes, I like the yes. part about the portal, um, the portal being buried under Voy, uh, which was shown only in the web comic. I forget what, do you guys remember the name of the web comic? Um, Cradle of Life. Cradle of Life. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, what's so great about this book is like, even, even when you think it's about to betray what, came before you you read the next sentence and everything's fine it's all cool it's funny it shows you how close that they can stick with continuity when they want to with the fiction it's funny that isn't it well i think we've, we've discussed this before but i think <laughs> that they've been they're like nine out of ten they're better than bungie ever was frankly about sticking to continuity when it comes to lore it's just with expanded can't. universe stuff yeah well when it comes to visual stuff they just are little kids with crowns they want to use um <laughs> see, I, see i really do wish but they had stuck with their original plans and put this book out before halo 4 i know it's all about marketing but i think going into halo 4 knowing that the die that we all knew it was died before halo 4 came out my god i hated that whole oh who's the evil secret oh who is the bad guy oh i hated that and I, I think a lot of people would have been better off had they went into halo 4 since everyone and their dog knew it was didact in the cryptoman anyway have they been told that oh by the way it's not just didact sleeping it's, it's he's been over he's angry and there's, there's this rest that was supposed to make him all nice and peaceful and, and, and all he's been through. It's like, yeah, that went wrong. He's probably not going to be a nice guy when he comes out of there. Now, here's another other, other interesting part about that is they said the we find out that the Organon is an actual precursor artifact that did exist and was like the source, basically, of the domain. Best um, twist ever, by yeah, the way. Yeah, that was twist. awesome. I love that. Like, I knew I always knew that they were going to explore the idea of the domain a little bit more, but... I didn't know they were going to take it in that direction. Um, I always kind of imagined. Yeah, I always kind of obvious. imagined that it would end up being like some sort of digital entity that kind of I don't know. For anyone who's read the Ender's Game series, there's the entity uh, Jane who comes into being like within this digital 
information web that spans the galaxy. I um, know. I know what Jan is, yeah. Yeah. But for anyone who doesn't, uh, basically it wasn't created by people or any race. Like this digital being just comes into being. And that's kind of what I imagined the domain was going to be. But to take it in the direction of the precursors, like that adds so many more implications to, to how important it is and what it really represents, not just to the story of the trilogy, but like just to the Halo universe in general. It's amazing. Um, <clears throat> but the fact is, they say the didact in his cryptum did not have access to the domain because the organon was destroyed. But what I'm curious about is in Halo 4, they specifically call the terminals the domain terminals. And uh, in Anniversary, the terminals were in a certain way non-canon in the sense that Chief never actually accessed them. But in Halo 4 and in Halo 3, Cortana directly references Chief accessing the terminals, which means that they're more canon than the Anniversary terminals were uh, in terms of Chief's interaction with them. But doesn't that mean that to a certain extent the domain might still be active in feeding Chief information and choosing which stories to tell him? Don't get me started on the domain and the chief and oh god. Because that was how the ending was rational to me. With Cortana and the domain saving the chief. That That's that's how it made sense. And without that, it's just no. <laughs> we just have yeah, so heart light so bollocks and holograms and bollocks and oh, all if you follow the, the line of logic that Cortana did save him using the domain, that's another point of evidence for the Organon, or at least the domain in some other form still existing. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe. I don't know. Because if you say that the domain's not there, then whenever the data comes out of the cryptum, he doesn't make any effort to re-communicate with the domain at all. Well, it was implied that the cryptum allowed him direct subconscious or conscious access to the domain one or the other. Yeah, and obviously he doesn't do it because he, if nothing changes for him since he got out of the cryptum, he goes back into the cryptum. It's like a little Batmobile. He travels around it, even though it was a prison. And it's funny because in, in the book you see it was a a battle cryptum or something. They said. Yeah, battle cryptum. So is that why we see him? He's actually using it in the battlefield, zipping around the place. It's a, it's a bit silly to have a battle bed, you know. Hey, you gotta sleep sometime. Why not do it from a tower of awesome? It does make you wonder to what to what degree of consciousness, like what level of consciousness is he Sleeping is he at there? within the cryptum? You know, well, he's, he's obviously he's obviously awake enough that he can plot get the chief to open it up for him. I think yeah, I think so does that mean he's been conscious in there for a hundred thousand years? Yes, that's the thing. That's that's why I think it makes the difference here. The other cryptum, I don't think he was conscious. At all, considering the drugs he did to his body, it was long-term planning. They wanted to put him away, but he was only there for what a few thousand years. And the other cryptum, and and the Halo Four cryptum, he wasn't supposed to be in there for that length of time, but he was anyway. So in some and ways, it's almost like it's almost like Guilty Spark's story that he started out as this sane, rational being, and then just slowly, from being aware and awake this whole time, just was driven insane. But unlike Guilty Spark, Didact literally had nothing to occupy his thoughts other than. The mantle, revenge, you know? and and the flood, of course, the precursor. Oh, well, actually, I don't, give, I don't think give two about the flood because if he came out, he should have looked around the galaxy and thought, "These humans did a good enough job. There's no flood here. Brilliant." You say look around the galaxy like that's something really easy to do. Yeah, okay, I think... he should have spent more than two seconds having a good thought, a good think about it. Maybe 
to get a good gauge of the current stance of the galaxy. He doesn't even bother at all. Well, I think I think that in that respect, he knows that Halo's worked. I think the issue there is that he's been fixated on. I mean, what I what I really like about what Bear and 343 did is they made him a villain, but they made him also a, a kind of tragic figure because he did totally get screwed at every turn. If everyone had just listened to him in the first place, everything would have been way better. The humans wouldn't have gotten devolved. They would have had a much more effective defense against the Flood from the get-go. Like, basically, everyone doesn't listen to him enough. And then, from his perspective, everyone just subsequently betrays him right down to his wife with the whole sleeping with his clone thing, which was, you know, understandable. So, I really like that aspect. I can see why he would be fixated on humans and not the Flood, because that's... The Flood were really just an expression, the means by which everyone else just left him to hang and dry. Yeah, Saluntium does so much to, to add character to the die that can make us understand his motivations and his, his emotions in Halo 4. And I just, uh, uh, I so wish that that stuff was included in the game because so many people are going to be missing out on this really great character He's yeah, that's just the thing. Not a great character in the game. They promised us we wouldn't have to read the books to understand the characters. If you haven't read the book, the Didact is a joke of a bad guy. He's a stupid-looking alien with nice armor who does these weird things for no reason and wants to kill everybody for no reason. It makes no sense. You have the books, you see exactly who the character is. You understand his motivations. You understand all the he's been put through. You understand his mental states. You know the character. You understand why he's doing these things that would seemingly contradict why he would be doing them in the first place. You understand all these complicated things about the character in the game? Derp. I don't fucking know. And that's a failing. That's something they said they wouldn't do, but they did anyway. I think it's the same. Unfortunately, it's the same issue, even though they're trying to step away from it. It's the same issue you had when you were describing Bungie's stories. It's like, all right, well, this is going to make a lot more sense and it's going to be a lot more gratifying if you read all the books too. And it's kind of unfortunate that you can't just say to someone, all right, this is the game you want to play and you'll get a feel for it. It's kind of, if you want to understand the Halo universe, you're going to have to go through 2,000 pages as well. New Galleon, he stepped away from Halo now. And that means we don't have the pleasure of seeing much of his work on our site going forward. And one of the things that really gets me is that he didn't like the Halo 4 story at all, but he went through the trouble of going through the first two Forerunner books, and I don't think he cares enough now to bother with the third one. And I think because of the way they did it with the, with the marketing and the book coming out after the game, he's missed out on that actual part of the story. That The, the only part that would maybe, maybe save him from walking away from the franchise, or at least giving him a payoff that the game really didn't give him. You know what I mean? I, I feel really terrible for that situation to, to have happened. And it's obviously not his fault, it's not, it's, but I can understand where he was coming from because it's a game. Well, in terms of payoffs, I think that's probably the, the key word you could describe Silentium as just especially with some of the the little they weren't treated over the top or bared and spent a lot of time so look at this guys this is going to be really great but just the um i mean little touches like at one point the didact 
they use like damnation loosed on the stars just repeating certain kind of key phrases that have woven their way through the the series and then down to finally answering the question of what guilty spark was referring to in the first game something that i know the hbo story page people were arguing about for years and years yeah and that's that's the great thing is these are questions that were first brought up over 12 years ago 12 years back in 2001 when combat evolved first came out people came out people were asking about what does this mean what does this imply about the story and the history of the forerunners and now 12 years later 12 years later we're finally getting the answers and those stories are finally starting to come to a close and and they've done it right like that's just the part that amazes me every time i think about it like there were so many ways to screw this up and they did all those reveals and tied it back around so perfectly funny thing is they didn't I mean, have to if, do that that's like they didn't have to be as comprehensive in doing that at all all they had to do was tell the story of the foreign war tied back they buried over there you go go home have your paycheck you know what i mean he didn't have to tie it up with such a pretty little bow let's just say the fact that they they did go out of their way to address a lot of long-standing questions like the 343 master chief conversation question i think that says a lot about their intent more than anything and beyond just being pure fan service you know it's it does a lot in terms of allowing 343 to pursue their own stories now like they've They've closed off Bungie's arc. They've closed off all the all the questions that Bungie has posed. Um, and you know they've been dropping their own mysteries this whole time. But as far as everything that the last trilogy dropped on us and kept us wondering about, like it's it's over at this point. And you know they've done. I, I can only say it so many times, but really they've done a phenomenal job of closing it off and keeping it emotionally satisfying. And now this is what's interesting to me is they're gonna. They're going to move on with the Reclaimer saga, and you know they can, they can forge their own path and not have to go back to everything that Bungie did and all those open-ended questions. Like, but do you not think that would make more sense before the Reclaimer saga started? Having that out there before the game started, you know what I mean? It does make more sense that way. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that because then it it would have been entirely fresh from the moment we first picked up and played Halo Four. But at the same time, you know, it's only a gap of a couple months. It hasn't even been a year since the game came out. So it's it's not so bad, all things considered. Yes, it would have been better, but at the same time... You say that, you say that right now. There's people who have left the franchise who don't, who, who won't have this product. True, yeah. Would have got I mean, this I'm, product I'm speaking absolutely from fans who are still engaged with the... And to be devil's advocate, I mean, we really don't know if it was ready to go, if it, that's even possible that it could have been rushed out in time for or before i think it was not rushed i think they they could have done it. this guy this, this book these books were delayed for years while three for three find their fate find the voice that they wanted find the direction they wanted to go in yeah but greg bear wasn't sitting on a completed novel for a year <laughs> i never say it was i'm just saying they could have easily have had like in, in any of the time frames that they had wanted between now and say five years ago, they could easily have had the, the books at any of those points that they wanted to. They just chose not to. I think it's a conscious choice they, they, they made, particularly with the marketing of Halo 4. Anyway, it's just, I'm sick of talking about marketing. You're the one who brings it up. This is annoying. Yeah, I keep bringing it up because we keep going back to it. 
Let's go into the key mines and star roads. I don't want to talk about. Come on. They definitely among the kind of things that they sprung on us, um, but which sort of has it has roots in a lot of the um, even Nyland's work. I think is where it first became pronounced. But the idea that slip space is something that nobody really understands, even the forerunners. And in this book, they spend a lot of time introducing the idea that. You can only move, you can move a whole lot of stuff really fast, but it comes with consequences. And so basically the reason that the domain has been down, I know that I thought it was um, flood influence and when it was discussed in cryptum and stuff, but it was actually because they were moving the halos around. It was so basically disastrous that it basically interrupted and kicked them off their internet. And I think that's a really interesting... It's a really interesting um, elaboration on what we've gotten with uh, Halo 4, where things would show up where they weren't supposed to be and stuff. And didn't they, didn't they say as well, one thing I noticed with that, they said that um, whenever the Halos were about to be fired, something about the slub... slub? slip space or subspace things that they were saying they they were able to see the halos being fired before, before they were yeah. fired yeah what, this is what's so cool about this all to me <laughs> they talk they also talk about this whole idea of reconciliation after you make a jump of a you know significant speed that i mean i think they literally say that your fate or they don't call it fate but that's that's essentially what it is it goes back to the whole forerunner crystal from first strike which everyone hated but they managed to tie it up and and make it work is that there's this idea that you can kind of outrun your fate and outrun where you're supposed to be. And you have to give it time. You have to wait for the actual reality to catch up something like that. And it, you know, it, it goes beyond our understanding of slip space as far as human tech goes. But when you see that the forerunners have recognized this and have worked it into their, uh, their systems and how they actually have to go through these slip space jumps, uh, it's just, it's really interesting. And it, it, it adds a facet to the universe that has been there, that's been present throughout all of the other books, but it's just now starting to come to the forefront and we're starting to understand it a lot more. Also, did you pick up on the fact that it was mentioned numerous times, particularly with Requiem's technology, that the energy technology that the foreigners use harvest energy, potential energies from multiverses? From multiple alternative universes, yeah, and, and that where, and where there were natal natal universes that they were literally destroying and harnessing for energy, like that's so cool. That's that's <laughs> technology I never would have thought Halo would uh, delve into, and it works so well when you explore it through the Forerunners. And it's only like potential universe, potential realities, and stuff that that they're that they're able to create the harvest. <laughs> Jesus, yeah, and this is shit. this is the other cool thing about the whole. Forerunner trilogy is a lot of people didn't read it because they didn't want the mystery of the Forerunners to be destroyed. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and you read stuff like this, and it's like, yeah, you know more about the Forerunners as beings, as individuals. But when you read about the technology that they have and the understanding of the universe that they have, it doesn't decrease. I mean, it decreases the mystery about the Forerunners to a certain extent, but then it adds so much more mystery in terms of the larger universe. Like, they're they're taking one thing away and just adding so much more in terms of how you look at and interpret the Halo universe. But I, I think that, that that goes down to the that goes down a route where people like us can get excited about it because it's science fiction. 
we can understand some of the concepts that are presented like that. They only tell us, oh yeah, that's just, uh, that's an energy field that harnesses multiple potential existences and, and multiverses and just compacts and down. And, yeah, that's a very, very far-reaching thing they to, to put out there. And as sci-fi fans, you can sort of appreciate that and grasp it on a very, very elemental level because, well, you have to because it's, it's a human-created story and you're going to be able to do that anyway. You know what I mean? Never mind things like neural physics based upon the precursor's belief that the galaxy, that the universe, not the galaxy, the universe itself is a transcendent living entity. And that the neural physics is a part of that because it's all part of it. The stars and the galaxies make up the individual molecules of this greater being, the same way that our our bodies will be made of little smaller molecules that never really interact, and little cells never really interact. Just, and the, this is what the precursors believe with their neural physics, and that's how they expressed it in their technology. But trying to get your head around that is so so awesome. And I, 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 I can understand where people are going and saying, well, oh, sure, that's all the smart people get and all understand it. But I think that what you were saying there, Isaac, is true. You, just because it sheds light and says, this is what it is, this is what it is, this is what it is, doesn't mean you can't appreciate it in a completely different way. Yeah, you know, I really, uh, I really feel sorry for everyone who made the choice back when Cryptum came out not to start reading that series. Uh, and I, I hope listening to this or reading the reviews of the book makes them change their mind and go back and, and go through this experience because it's it's one hell of a ride, really. It's <laughs> it'll blow your mind every step of the way. Like I, I'm a big fan of hard science. Like the more gritty, realistic sort of science that's based in at least hard, cold, hard concepts that we can that we know and work. Today, I, I'm a big fan of that sort of stuff. So when it comes to the more out there b- concepts like like magic and science and, and, and things which basically to say, well, it's advanced tech. It may as well be magic. Let's just go along with it. Yeah, I'm but that's ne- the thing. Like the precursors and the forerunners <laughs> allow you to perfectly explore those. Like it, it keeps them at a yeah. distance, but then at the same time kind of keeps it as hard science fiction because you understand that their understanding is so much more advanced than ours. Yeah, that, that's the thing that lo- does allow me to appreciate that because normally my brain just go, yeah, fuck that shit. But I'm able to sit back and just go, no, 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 no. I, I will allow my primitive understanding here just to say, well, there could be better, there could be more deeper things that, that even we would know about now. That, that, that makes sense just because we don't know about now. No, no, no. Because it, it doesn't remove itself the way I imagine it could have done. It could be very hurtful to Halo they have this sort of fantasy going down and I'm, I'm really happy that even with such out there concepts even with the floods and their seeming seeming telepathy and the precursors with their everything that we're still not thinking well it's all it's all mystical magical almost religious godly but it's not it's, it's still grounded and, and stuff that we can we can, we can just appreciate it as being an extension, a fictional extension of, of science. Yeah, and uh, on the subject of, of reconciliation, have you guys thought at all about what uh, the semi-revelation of this reconciliation theory, this whole concept, might reveal about the Forerunner Crystal from First Strike? Because I've been putting a little bit of thought to it, and it's actually kind of cool uh, when you connect the dots. No, I totally actually did not think about the Forerunner Crystal, but now that you mention it, I'm surprised they didn't have a reference to it. Well, they talked about the slip space crystals, but that's entirely different. That's, you know, that's more like the Star Trek 
dilithium crystals um, in terms of how it's used in the fiction. But at the same time, we know from First Strike that the crystals are capable of so much more. And when you couple it with the understanding of this idea of reconciliation, that you can essentially outrun your fate, your your intended place in the galaxy based on your choices and your movements and all that, it, it kind of gets in your image this head or, or in your head this image that fate is like an actual moving force within the galaxy, within the universe, just like light, sound, all of that. And that by using slip space, you're kind of circumventing the natural speed at which your fate is supposed to move. And it's a weird concept, but like when you hear it explore when when you hear it talked about through the forerunners, it like it makes sense. And when you think about all the other stuff in the Halo universe that we've seen and and specifically the the Forerunner crystal, you realize that the crystal allowed them to tr- not well yeah, kind of travel back in time. And they say in first strike that the crystal wasn't necessarily moving them back in time, but moving them to their intended place in the universe. It was something like that. Like, this is not... It moved you back to reach at this time because this is where you were supposed to be. So if you think about that, in a way, the crystal wasn't traveling them back in time. It was counteracting the reconciliation effect and putting them where they were supposed to be without having to go through reconciliation after their jump. And that alone, like lends so much to the narrative of First Strike. It's just amazing. Like When you connect all these dots, all the implications that it has, it's, it's mind-blowing. Can you tell, folks, that Isaac is really excited about this? It was a good book. It was just, <laughs> it's a big deal. You know? I, reading this book was such a cool emotional experience for me. Like, It, it felt... I think you, you mentioned this in the forums, and I totally agree. Like, this book literally could have been the conclusion to the entire Halo franchise. They could have, they could have finished up the Reclaimer saga, then released the Forerunner trilogy, and had it had this book be like, if this was the last thing that was ever released, it would have been satisfying. And and it, it's such a good payoff for over ten years, over twelve years of investment in this universe and this story. Like, this is a big deal. This is without a doubt one of the best. Halo books out there in terms of what it offers to fans. Well, so on the on the note of what's next, I guess I think I think actually this is the book is really similar to Halo Four in a way because they both have a really I guess it's more understandable with um, Silentium because it's the end of a trilogy rather than the beginning, but they both have this sort of sense of finality to them a lot like comet evolved did where okay well this is wrapped up um and there are obviously a lot of threads out there but i'm not sure which ones are going to be important which ones do you think are going to crop up later in terms of what we take from this final book into maybe the next two games well i think the most important thing obviously for everyone who's listened to the epilogue not only does it conclude riser's story but it tells you that there are still other Forerunners out there alive other than the the Erdidact from Halo 4. And, uh, you know, that alone... No, 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 no. It doesn't say there's other Forerunners out there alive. It says there's at least a handful of Forerunners who survived the firing of the Halos. And that's completely different. I mean, there's the potential that they're still out there and they're still alive. And yeah, it's not the whole race. It is just a handful. But when it comes to Forerunners interacting with the current state of humanity it's a big deal even when one shows up and the fact that they they went through the efforts of characterizing a couple of these individuals like uh chant to green showed up and 
at first you think, okay, so this is just another throwaway character, and then they de- they start developing her character and developing it more, and then she shows up in the epilogue, and you realize there might be something important going on with this character, and and maybe not. You know, it it all depends on where they're going to take the story, but there's the potential for these individuals to crop up at a later or to pop up yeah. at a later point. It's a, it's a thread that they dangle in front of you for for later on. It's- Throughout the whole Halo franchise, the the entire history of Halo has been talking about the reclamation, uh, humanity reclaiming their place in the galaxy that the Forerunners laid out for them. And we know now it's it's all about reclaiming the mantle. Um, And it hasn't been directly talked about, directly referenced in Halo 4 or in uh, Spartan Ops so far. But I think visually, if you and and if you just look at the development of humanity from Halo One, or or even like the Fall of Reach novel, um, to where we're at right now, you can see that they're taking steps towards reclaiming the mantle, and that that is eventually going to be, at least in my opinion, the the overarching story that covers. And hey, here's a big hint too: the reclaimer saga. I don't think that's the thing. I don't think that we're going to get to that point until we see certain elements drop from Halo that are just antithesis to what, theologically, the mantle's supposed to be about. Such as? Two things. One, Dupro Spartans, still they'll never hold the No, but I think, I think that's the point. Yeah. And two. That's and how two, I see it. Okay. Two, Oni. The, the existence of Oni. Doing their evil, evil, evil ways. Yeah, but that's exactly what I mean. That's exactly what I mean. The writers are putting these really iffy decisions that humanity is making, or at least that certain aspects of humanity are making. They're putting those decisions at the forefront and showing the audience, like pretty much slapping it in your face. Like, these guys are not doing good. They are not reclaiming the mantle, even though this is the reclaimer saga and that's what they're supposed to be doing. So humanity is on a downward slope right now. And we mm-hmm. know from everything else that that's not what's supposed to be occurring. And so there, that automatically right there creates the conflict for the whole new, you know, trilogy or whatever. is on a downward slope, but technically, we're we're, we're deck slapping every other race out there with our brand new shiny tech. Because the Master Chief has had this direct contact with the librarian, or at least the the essence of the librarian, and now Halsey has had direct contact with this essence. They are the two characters in the Halo universe who are aware or will soon become aware of how far off from their intended destiny humanity is. I don't think so, because this is the whole Halsey thing. They just brought her in for Spartan Ops, and now they have a character of one arm. I strongly disagree. For me, people will disagree. argue they, 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 they're, 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 they're hoping on at least two seasons of Spartan Ops. That's almost 100% No, but Halsey, Halsey is going to extend past Spartan Ops. I mean... But she I, can't I mean, unless they that. actually unless they finish Spartan Ops, she can't. She's always gonna be one arm of girl people revenge. No, no. I mean joke. Right if now. You look, if you look back over the Halo books and the Halo series in general, a lot of people will, will argue against this because they're uh, partial to the games, and I understand that. Master Chief is without a doubt the main character of the games. I'm not gonna yes. argue that that's would be pointless to argue that. But I think in general, Dr. Halsey is the main character of the Halo universe i think no more so than master chief she carries the weight of the decisions made and the fate of humanity and the galaxy in general at this point because of what humanity is capable i would they would have two books probably a third book coming out shortly now two books all calling their mangali different page mangali different page mangali right we get it evil well all right but 
even every chance i think that you have to separate and this is where i think people who are complaining bitterly about halsey's treatment have to while i think you can totally make arguments that their presentation and their the actual construction of the storyline has been less than optimal but i don't think you can argue that i don't think that honestly i don't think you can argue that they mean to make halsey out to be an evil evil person who will is just there to be screwed over yeah especially i can see even in definitely in the books where you can see karen travis but in spartan ops they spend a whole amount of time a because she's the most i hate to use this because i know whenever they put this out here it wasn't meant to be taken this way and by taking it this way i'm being a bit of a dick but i'm being a bit of a dick so fuck it you're gonna bring up the blowing up requiem thing aren't you yes i am i am i am you know, yeah, you know angry. what <laughs> you know how stupid it was. They put out this little so-called background um insight look into how they came up with the ideas to close off Spartan Ops. And basically what it was is a little piece of text that said that Frankie joked, How about we threw Requiem into a son? And then hey, we did it. And it's sort of off the cuff. Um, again, as as devil's advocate. As devil's advocate, I think there was probably a little bit more discussion that went into it than what was implied by Brian Reed. Um, yes, I, it, I, might have, I, it might have been conceptualized in that way, but I think they also realized that there was more. Like, no way it's going to be a big deal if you blow up the one planet that you set your whole game on. Yeah, like I, I think we can trust 343 a little bit better than to think that they wouldn't recognize how much of a change that would bring about to the franchise. I think even Frankie went on there because... And he was kind of pissed, and I think rightly so, at on Gaff because they were going off on it. I mean, they wanted to, they wanted to get rid of Requiem. That was the point. They just didn't know how they were going to do it. And Frankie said, "We'll tow it into the sun," and then they went from there. Well, just ignoring the fact that there was a button on Requiem, into the sun button. Jesus, I have to press this. I mean, it makes sense from a self-destruct standpoint, and for flood failsafes. Yeah. So why would non-reclaimers be able to do that? Because remember, up until this point, if you're not human, you have fuck all access to any Forerunner systems, apart from in this little convenient storyline where, whoops, they do. Well, I think partly, I mean, this goes into uh, Capic, um on our forums, kind of has, if at some point we should probably post the, the gospel of Spartan Ops according to Jewel because he he focuses it sort on of basically as the the best person in spartan ops is actually the misunderstood covenant zealot which he has a point and i think that once again this is something that did not get expressed well but it was the idea that this wasn't your usual covenant dude who was just i don't get how it works he was willing to use he knew how to use humans to get what he wanted he knew how to subvert the controls in place. I don't think I like that. I, I knew where he was coming from fictionally. I like how they developed him outside of it. So you knew he was going to be different. It wasn't going to be a snarling evil bad guy who who would just be shooting at you all the time. He was going to be more intelligent. And, 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 and PMing Halsey through, <laughs> through the internet going, I know who you are. And Facebook stalking her? That's a bit weird. I'm going to go out on a limb here. 
and uh, and say something that some people might get angry about. But I prefer Julem Dama as an as a Sengali character uh, more than I prefer the Arbiter. I think he has a little bit more of an interesting emotionality. I mean, the Arbiter's backstory is great, and he's got a lot of you know betrayal that's occurred to him. But the, the way he expresses his emotions is so much different from the way Jewel does. And I just get a different feeling from each character. And I, I, I don't know, there's something much more raw and honest about the way Jewel comes across in the cuts or in the pre-rendered cinematics than the Arbiter did in the games. Uh, it's also a pity that both Arbiter and Jewel aren't in Silentium at all. Although I did, um, <laughs> I did really wish that they had brought some ancient Sangeli into the story. I mean, they talked about what the, the was up with that. Yeah, like you kind of expected it at a certain point, and then it just never happened. Never like, happened. Even yeah. at the ver- when they were all, um, what was it? They were all on the Ark, and all the different species that even the humans, like species the humans hadn't recognized. I thought for a fact they were going to say like, "Oh, there was this weird lizard thing with four jaws," but they never did. But for some reason, they do multiple times remind us how sexually virulent this the um, the uh, the fucking prophets are. Yes, and they're very sexually virulent. But well, I, I don't know that, why that's stuck in my head. I don't want it <laughs> stuck in my head, but it is. It, I it, think that says that more about you than the book. <laughs> it adds a lot to their story, though. It makes their story much more tragic as well. And that's the thing. Like the Halo story really is, for the most part, it's been a tragedy. Like. Most steps along the way. Did you guys catch that mention in the book? I think it was Guilty Spark. I mentioned it. Uh, whenever the halos are being fired off, the uh, the outreaches of their of their communications detected a new spe- a new species uh, for the first time making first contact, uh, reaching out to the stars, saying hello, we're, we exist. Too bad. And then the halos fired. <laughs> I was like, I don't think they were cataloged. No, they were. Yeah, that was that was again a really great indication of just how tragic this this really was. You know, I love that that was in there because it really showed that as as much effort as the librarian put into her plans, like there's, it's a huge galaxy. There's only so much even this really advanced species is going to be able to do. So, considering it hasn't been too long since the hill's been fired. Up until the present day, as it were. So uh, that means our galaxy is pretty much empty, apart from whatever they cataloged. You know, they talked. They talked about that in, uh, or, or I think it's in the anniversary terminals. If you look at, in the terminal that talks about the halo's pulse, um, that you see a display of the halo effect sweeping through the galaxy, and it pauses at everything, every single solar system, and it says, uh, what is it like? Odds of uh, sentient life. And it's always like it's always above ninety percent. It's like ninety-two percent, ninety-seven percent, ninety-five percent. So most of these planets were most likely capable of harboring and probably did have sentient life. And then if you look underneath that, it says odds of repopulation, 0.3%, 1%, And only a few of them were like twenty-five percent or something like that. And again, like the the fact that they've kept so consistent with this whole idea that yeah, the halo was a really tragic thing that happened, and it really did screw over the galaxy in terms of variety and the species that we might have been interacting with had that not, not happened. It also kind of explains why we hadn't met anyone until we meet the Covenant, because everyone else got wiped out, and they're basically the only other big dogs around. Yeah, and why the Covenant, you know, there, there's a lot of time in between 
each uh, new client race that's added to their uh, hegemony. But see, that's that's awesome. That's that's a little bit of planning. You know, they actually put some forethought into that. That didn't need an explanation at all, but it's there if you want it. Okay, well, so looping back to what I was originally saying before you went off on Frankie throwing something into the sun, I don't think that you can really, with all this stuff, I think you can, it's clearly got a master plan to it, and that's, and while I really hope that 343 tries to improve their actual storytelling in the games, I think, especially with Silentium, they've made it really clear they have a vision for the universe going forward, and it's it's a good one, honestly. I can see where people might have wanted it to go a different way, but I don't think it's for lack of they didn't think it through. All they're doing is just increasing the scope and, and the meaning behind the story so much more. And, like, what more could you want from that? Like, I understand if it's if it's not going the direction you expected or hoped that it would go in, but if they're putting this much more weight behind the narrative and the, the ultimate, uh, you know, at this point, intangible goal of of the halo narrative that means a lot like it places that up there alongside some of the greater science fiction that we have i just hope they don't do any more like creating two didactics for the fuck of it yeah but it lent so much more to his character and and his eventual betrayal it didn't you could have done all that without having a number two you could have but then you couldn't have the didact at the arc, firing it while the other guy was in the cryptum, and you couldn't have that whole betrayal thing, and then the really, really have... lazy storytelling. That's no, I don't. No, no, no. no. Here, here's the character. I can see where it could have been lazy storytelling, but I think it was completely justified by the ends. When it comes to story, like the ends do justify the means. And I feel really passionately about this. We, we've, you know, Bungie and three four three have gotten so much crap from people about like. Oh, it would have been so easy if you had just introduced this one element and it would have, you know, undone all these inconsistencies and and the story would have been explained, canon junkies would have been happy. Uh, you know, like we've given crap to both companies so many times for their lack of doing this kind of stuff. So I feel very passionately that that we should not be giving them crap for for introducing elements into the story that were intentionally there to reconcile what would have otherwise been inconsistencies in the narrative. It got to the point where people were starting up Halo 4, and because this book wasn't art, way it should have been, people were going, well, which didact is this? Is this, is this, is this, is this Bornstellar didact or the other didact? Who knows? I'm saying what we have right now, even... Like, I'm hardly to tell people, you might find out who that character is. Read this book. It's a bit stupid. People were told they weren't going to have to do that. I mean, it's just, ultimately, it comes down to me, like, it would be great if the story is more accessible, and it would be great if they, the actual storytelling was stronger, and it would be great if they avoided gobbledygook and stuff when possible, and kept things internally consistent and cohesive. But ultimately, if it is a good story, and it doesn't, I'd say, undermine the for lack of a better word, soul of Halo, it's fair game. All right, was there anything else that we were going to touch upon? I feel like we're missing something. Random speculations for the next media that's coming out? I almost feel like it's pointless to speculate at where it's going to go from here. It could go anywhere. Oh, wait, did we did we mention that they actually gave the Reclaimers, uh, not the Reclaimer symbol, 
the mantle symbol its actual name? No, no, that was a different symbol. Was it? Yeah, because the mantle symbol is like the traditional sword and shield. Like you've got the one uh, Are you vertical. sure that's not what it was? Because they, they described they it described as a tree, it. a multi-pronged tree. And I don't think that, I at least in my mind, it was they were two different symbols. I thought that they were the same because I thought they were coming at it from the perspective of these were the the native forerunners and it was um, the librarian's view of it. I thought it was just tying into the whole idea that of, well, I mean, the, the biggest theme pretty much of the entire book is, or really the Forerunner trilogy has been, what is the mantle and who gets to decide what the mantle is? And so I thought it was part of the the builders see it as prestige and stuff. The warriors see it as shield and sword. The life workers see it as a tree of life and sheltering. And then the precursors just see it as, I don't know, a chemistry set. That's actually a good point. I hadn't really thought about it in that context. I mean, I mean, the thing is, it just, when they, when they, when he described it in the book, it didn't sound like the, uh, the sword and shield, the the mantle symbol to me, but I mean, you could be right. I, I think that actually lends a lot of cool dynamics to the whole interpretation of the mantle theme. Also, another random thing I decided in my head canon that I like is um, kind of like most random last minute character to throw in. Um, what was uh, endurance of will? The didax could have been squeeze. I'd really like to think that she's the uh, the Promethean knight that uh, the librarian touches or pokes at um, in the final terminal. Yeah, I like that idea. The only question I have about that is, um, would she have had time or or even access to a composer and then the systems to transfer herself into a knight? Like, would she have been able to do that on her own? I think so, because in the book, they, they don't specifically say whether or not she composes herself or whatever, but the librarian has the implication. Like, when she's leaving, she's wondering if one of them is, is her. And then the, then there's also the whole bit that she was the one who told Endurance to guard the didact and, and helped convince her to side with the librarian, mm-hmm. in essence. And then in the terminal, it's kind of this symbolic, like, okay, this is a red-orange knight, and... She touches it, and then it turns over to her mm-hmm. bluish color, and then yeah. the rest of them go with it. So in terms of like visual symbolism, that could also be indicating what you're talking about. Well, and they also had the uh, an- another little tie-in is they had the mention about how their armor, Forerunner's armor, reflected their moods in relation to the colors. Yeah, it lends a little bit more fictional weight to it. But although I don't know... Uh, they only talked about it changing the intensity of the color, not the, the actual color itself. But it's that's a cool thing to read into that was put into the books. Well, I other than that, I guess you can look at it as like why everyone's lightsaber is a different color. It's supposed to be like some reflection of your personality or something. I don't even know. <laughs> well, even outside the expanded universe, from a meta perspective, obviously, the Star Wars films are really symbolic, and so a lot of sci-fi kind of pulls from that. You know, Tron did it too. So. Oh yeah, you you can't write a book or make a visual work without dealing with symbolism of color so uh we didn't talk at all about the naturalized forerunners existing in the tarantula nebula oh yeah um and then there's a lot of still a lot of stuff we didn't touch on about the precursors in the flood 
but again that's all pretty it's at least for the precursors and blood thing i think i think at this point it's kind of self-evident but yeah i was kind of surprised that they just laid it out there and said oh yeah so the precursors definitely were the the seeds of the flood or whatever and that's that's it basically but the precursors have existed for what, over a hundred billion years. Does that not mean the out, the out, they've outlived the existence of the, the known universe? Yeah, that's the that's the cool thing. I remember uh, what is it? The librarian talks about the precursors were oh the domain like had references to the precursors existing before there were even stars in the universe. As as far as our understanding of what it takes for life to come about. You know, to be nourished by stars and then to develop from there, it, it's that tells you so much more about the precursors as a race, like w- how big of a deal they really are. And and again, you know, having such an appreciation for all the Lovecraft, uh, you know, mythos that exists out there, it's a cool um, kind of pull in from from that uh, cosmicism, rock metal in time. Yeah, but no, I think at this point that article is very outdated and. I, I don't know. I'd love to do another one exploring the whole story of the Flood and the Precursors now that we actually know the, their relationship and their history. But the thing is about the Precursors, they've always existed as far as the universe goes, going by the timescales that we're told about. Was that the actual timescale that was given? Was it 100 billion? Yes. Okay. That's, that's an exact quote, 100 billion that's in the book. And the universe right now... Our current measurements, our universe's age, is less than fourteen billion. On the on the random, on the random, what the thing, the forerunners. That was the weakest part in terms of didn't seem as necessary to the overall plot. Where the the left behind forerunners, but I did like that they were so kind of random. <laughs> in that, oh yeah, we've discarded technology and stuff, but actually we've got this awesome thing where we've got like little biological versions and like whenever we need to remember something we just talk to the moss yeah it, it speaks to um the length and depth of forerunner history like even we've been talking about precursor history but forerunners have a crazy history too like yeah. going that far back and then they i like the the lots of the references to antiquated digital storage yeah <laughs> And that that's cool because it tells you that the, the domain and all the systems that Forerunners use, while they sound a lot like digital uh, information transfer and storage, it's quantum it's, computing it's or something even more advanced quantum, than that. Quantum foam. It uses quantum foam. Did well, they were they were also it? able to reverse engineer their own genetics to create, you know, domesticated food animals and and crops. So they're we they're we can we, we can reverse. Uh, I don't know if our, we could create our DNA. Whole, right? A whole new species from scratch. Do you have any idea what we could do if we weren't if we weren't um, restrained by ethics? If we weren't restrained by 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 politicians and religion, do you have no idea how how insane we could go down that road in a very small amount of time? Seriously, seriously, the, the ethics holds us back from a lot of stuff for good and bad reasons, and it means that if if we weren't that way inclined to be held back in those areas we could make strides unbelievable strides in 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 a couple of years decades you'd be surprised i i i think the forerunners were in the in that part of the story the forerunners are actually the equivalent of the humans in in the halo universe where 
what's the chief new asset in terms of the in terms of technological equality? And I think that's an interesting point. Imagine if, imagine the USC decide to go against their gods, essentially, going against their entire creators. And I, I'm just wondering why the pre- precursors even allowed them to do that. The precursors were a lot more passive than we, we've initially kind of believed. Like, they created the foreigners and the humans with the ability to rebel and, and do, do all that stuff. Going along with the, the big theme of who decides the mantle is the the big theme 343 has been pushing is sort of arrogance basically if you can get down to that because the precursors have the classic i mean you see it in starcraft you see it in so many science fiction things of smart race simply underestimates its creation and gets wiped out but the precursors no the precursors let themselves be wiped out they they, they decided for themselves they wanted to find out what dying was like because of the hundred billion plus years that they existed, they haven't died before, and there was nothing to actually kill them off. And then all of a sudden, the forerunners come along, and they're actually killing them off. And well, like, they never—they never said it. They never said that much in terms of precursors' motivations. Yeah, they, they didn't. They didn't set out to make something that, like, hey, get pissed off at us and kill us. No, it is, it is directly. I'm probably sure it's directly said. The the they created the flood so they could experience their own deaths. Because they never had the opportunity to do so before. I'm pretty there was, sure that there was, was also there was also a lot of talk that this kind of threw me off a little bit because with all the the you know logic based uh, technology based talk that was going on in this book, there was a part where it talked about the precursors reducing themselves to the flood to build back up again as this form of revenge, and that the flood itself was like evil, and that its motivations were evil, and that all this evil bad you know manifestation of darkness kind of stuff um which is so different from like what the precursors were described like before then like i i still think there's more to the flood and the sort of corruption that it has on entities from a biological standpoint that hasn't been explored yet like we have a lot of we have most of the details at this point but there's there's still these these little elements that hint at something more they were pretty much like biological gods i mean they they were gods like they could just i mean i have this image in my mind of them just being sitting outside the galaxy being like yeah we've done everything but the, the forerunners are rebelling against us let's turn into biological powder yeah okay and then there's like they just think it and then they turn into biological powder they they said that the flood was a form of revenge in one sense but also a way of maintaining precursor presence in the universe and and building back up to a sentient level so that means that they are they're they're they are numerous they're it's through the flood that they'll live on and there's this implication that they created the flood or reduced themselves to the flood and not just not like they didn't just immediately send it back into our galaxy because the grave mind says i have consumed galaxies of flesh and mind and bone and insolentium they, they say a similar line that uh, we've consumed a whole galaxy's worth of life. So they weren't th- created and then sent right back into our galaxy. They, there's more flood still beyond our galaxy, potentially. I don't know. I think that might be just talking about the tarantula, neb- the tarantula nebula galaxy. because It, it, it might never, have been, but, but they said it wasn't. They scanned that galaxy, and there's no life in that galaxy at all. None. Not it could have also, I, I do want to bring this up as a possibility, it could have also been the forerunners that rebelled against the precursors. I mean, if you think about it, the precursors lived 
in this smaller galaxy off uh, outside of the Milky Way, they had they had to have put up some of their precursor, their uh, neural physics based technology around this galaxy. And you think if the forerunners scanned this galaxy, they would have picked up on any remaining precursor tech. Well, but they they left the they left the star roads though in that that section. Oh, yeah. did they? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Never mind. But they they specifically mentioned that the pulse range could reach that far, so that's been destroyed. And so I assume the the forerunners are dead too. Wait, they talked about it reaching that far? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think the I think all right. Actually, all right, if I'm right, I think it was when they were firing the greater the halo at the greater arc. That's why it could reach that far because it was already outside the galaxy. Oh, you mean just when they fired the the omega halo? Yeah. And it probably, oh, yeah, I think I remember that. And it, like, directed it at that galaxy. Which also was another, in terms of kind of complicating the story, but also adding something, the whole, I was happy that they resolved the greater arc. Because when they first mentioned it, I was like, oh, seriously? Like, come yeah. on. But then now but, we know it's it's destroyed. Yeah, and that, and I like the idea of that they they made the halos and they messed up <laughs> they were so they were like designed by architects who were thinking big but didn't think about practicalities and mm-hmm. so they kind of had to redesign them yeah again well, makes all, sense. all the pieces in this book just fall into place so perfectly it's great it, it makes sense but they would refine the tech so they have seven but combine them it's and like the death star bigger effect yeah <laughs> shut up <laughs> i'm not sure why i'm reaching for star wars references when i'm a star trek guy but <laughs> It, uh, it makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, why build one? We can build 15 of them, you know what I mean? They said that all life was wiped out in the galaxy. So, uh, me and Danny were talking about this. That I, I guess we kind of skipped over or forgot that part. But if that hadn't happened, there would have been a group of Forerunners still alive, potentially in the Halo universe today, in contemporary Halo timeline. And, and I thought that the Forerunners that were still alive after the Halo array fired and wiped out all life in the galaxy, you know, uh, the Isodidact, uh, Chant to Green, all of them. I thought, I kind of hoped to a certain extent that they would have, you know, being this smaller group of Forerunners who witnessed this ultimate tragedy and all the failures of Forerunner society would have gone to this location with these naturalized Forerunners and, like, lived out the rest of their lives, you know, finally in peace and have some sort of well, I do think I do think they they didn't really hint on it as much as I thought they would, but the the epilogue does sort of give them their embarking on a great journey kind of thing. Uh huh. Which is talked about in the Halo Three terminals briefly. Yeah. So I think which that is pretty cool. You I like could that. Think of it. Maybe if they aren't going to touch, I think they could bring back the forerunners. They could just leave them to their to for fans to just wonder exactly what happened to them. They might have just let's go exploring or something you never know or maybe we just haven't found the shield world they're actually on since there were so few of them they just all crowded into one i kind of like i almost thought it would be cool if they like like i realize in some ways it wouldn't work but i thought it would have been cool if they mentioned at the end of silentium that they had all fled to uh trevelyan like they could be it would work they could be in there and they haven't and found humanity. them yet. Yeah, exactly. It's just so big that humanity hasn't found them. But I don't, I don't think that's it. I, I, in some ways, I hope that's not it because that seems a bit too simple and heavy-handed. But they just at the open same up time, the wrong door and the didact comes out. Get the hell off my lawn. Yeah. But 
oh god, I just for the longest time I've been kind of like the, the Halo story hasn't been quite as inspiring as it as it was, you know, you know, five plus years ago uh, when we knew less, and now it's it's finally back to that point where there's so much mystery and so much awe about the story and the universe and and what's still out there to find and and how far back it goes like I, to be at this point to be in this state of mind again regarding halo is just like such a cool feeling all right anything else i got nothing okay then i guess that about wraps up this episode feedback comments uh anything you can let us know uh in the forums or on the podcast page you can subscribe to us rate us on itunes and you can also follow us on twitter at forward dawn or subscribe to us on youtube at forward dawn thanks for listening and we'll see you later go read this book